With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. In the past six years, more than 150 women in Puerto Rico have been killed by their intimate partners. This year, there have been at least 21 femicides, including the killings of Keishla Rodriguez and Andrea Ruiz, high-profile cases that have renewed calls to hold accountable a system that fails to protect survivors. Gender-based violence is not unique to the island, but what's happening there is a window into what happens the world over. When I asked one of my best friends who lives in Puerto Rico, who could help us understand what is happening, why it's happening, and what we can each do to combat gender-based violence, she recommended Tania Rosario Mendez. Tania is the executive director of Taller Salud, a feminist organization on the island that works to tackle inequality in everything from healthcare to economic growth. And Tanya argues that inequality is central to understanding violence against women. Tanya, there is a renewed focus on femicide in Puerto Rico, but this is, of course, sadly not a new phenomenon. What is your earliest memory of stories like this? It's actually a story my grandmother told me. When she was very young, she married uh, someone else, not, not my grandfather. So she's this young wife. She has two small girls. And her husband used to lock her up in the house. She told me this story and she was not being, she was not even resentful. She was just telling me this story about her first husband and how he would leave to work and leave her locked up. She was saying how silly he was so jealous Stuff like that, right? So for me, I was terrified at the idea that someone else could lock me 
an adult uh, in a house because he was jealous someone would do look at me or uh, for me it was outrageous but I don't remember voicing that to her because she was so matter of fact about it and that's the earliest memory I have I was about nine it grew on me um, how normalized it was for several generations in my family and in my country, in my culture, that men could do that to women. Draw a line for me as you see it from that story to how we're still talking about femicide in the year 2021. I think we've overcome some obstacles, but Sometimes I think everything that has been gained is always at the peril of being lost. So we not only have to fight to keep what we've gained, but also to move forward with bolder and expansive ways of not only dealing with the problem itself, you know, with gender-based violence, but also with naming it, storytelling it. How do you tell the story of the victim? Why do you say death and you don't say homicide? Because I'm raising a daughter and sometimes I'm terrified that she's going to go out in a world that doesn't uh, think of her as a full human. So that's, you know, it's a terrifying thought. I have two daughters that fear is, is very real. And different somehow when you have the fear for someone else than when you have the fear for yourself. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pamper Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? (laughs) They do look cute, though. Bringing cheer 
M&M's for all fun kind. We'll talk about institutions because there are a lot of institutions that need to be held accountable in all of this. But I do want to ask you culturally what you think underpins violence against women. I'm very uh, mindful of, I've had a lot of reflections about the notions of machismo and how there is culturally a tendency that is different in Latino culture than it is in other cultures. I think gender inequality is all over the world. And I think femicides are all over the world happening. We, of course, are observing that there are regions and countries where women are at higher risk of fatality or of suffering greater abuse. But I don't think it's a phenomenon that it's only pertaining to one culture. Now, Puerto Rico has this unique mix of influences. Like Puerto Rico culturally feels and behaves very much like a Latin American country, but it has a great deal of influence that comes from the States and the good and the bad influences. So I would say that at this moment, I think that the worst or heavier underpin has to do with denial. There is a very strong agenda of a public opinion influence to deny the fact that there are gender differences and that their gender inequality even exists. Um, and I think it's very dangerous, not only because it will hinder public policy efforts, but also because of what it does to victims. Because then everything that is happening to you, you are imagining it. If everybody is repeating constantly that, you know, women have acquired so many rights, women can study, can vote, can be a public elected officials, women can be um, homeowners and can, you know, in, in Puerto Rico, I'm saying, and can inherit and can be CEOs. And so that means that gender inequality is resolved and is no longer an issue. So if you deny inequality, then everything else is like a cascade effect. So everything else related to gender inequality, gender-based violence, or even conversations about gender identity, they just lose priority status. They are no longer priorities. This is a non-issue right now. We should focus on different issues that are actual uh, priorities. The victims start to think that they are imagining <laughs> what they are going through. So for organizations like mine, reaching out, being available to victims becomes a task in itself. Like doing outreach requires community bridges so that you can reach people that think that they are going through something that can be resolved in therapy, for example, like there's something wrong with you. So you have to seek help individually. And it's not something pertaining to um, other realms of social dynamics. 
Do you have a sense of who or what is driving that denial? Talking from experience in Puerto Rico, there are several fundamentalist groups. They drive a very aggressive agenda. They are very organized and have a lot of resources. They even organized a party and were able to elect two uh, legislators uh, in their first ever run. They have radio stations and newspapers and TV outlets and YouTube channels. So they spread a hate narrative around gender specifically. They are talking about the dictatorship of gender. It's super, you know, polarizing and uh, hate-driven to anything that is slightly out of the mainstream ideas of very traditional roles. So a lot of people falls into those glitches. If you start saying, you know, this is what is safe, anything that won't fit in this box, it's a danger to your children. People start going into these spirals of hate. We've had a rise in trans femicides as well. And in a particular case, the fatality was a result of an incident, a public incident regarding the use of a bathroom where people like normal people in a fast food line felt compelled to correct something in that in their minds was not only harmful to I don't know what, but dangerous in some way that they thought. And so the bully started in the fast food and then went on to the social media and then ended up with some people following this person. And, you know, it's like a terror movie. So people think that it's uh, harmless, but this hate narrative is not because once it settles, anything that is perceived as harmful can be understood as a validation of your violent behavior. So you are somehow legitimized to be violent. The state has a role here in preventing these hate narratives to spread. They are dangerous to the safety of people. Tell me what you think that the role of the state is. So I think the state has a role in setting up a robust coordinated response for people that are vulnerable to violence as a state to, to provide social protection systems that are public and that are known. So if you are in danger, you know where to call, where to go, because this communicates that you're not on your own. What would it look like for these systems to work? Well, specifically if we're talking about victim protection, what we should be doing is looking at what is not working. If women are seeking protection and, and are still getting killed, there are things that are not working. Systemically, there's a pattern. I'm talking about victim services that are provided by the state, right? So what it would look like is we are making a priority to correct these glitches that are part of the coordinated response that is not coordinated at all. It's not that we are, you know, setting this up 
from zero. We have infrastructure and we have laws and we have 40 years of trial and errors. So in my opinion, what I'm trying to say is that it's not acceptable that we overlook uh, systemic errors. Can you paint a picture for me, perhaps using either a real example or an imagined example of where the system breaks down? Okay, so protection services have different entry doors. So this is the first thing for me that should be corrected. So entry doors are not robots, are people, are nurses in triage, in public hospitals and emergency rooms, are police officers in local precincts in each town. Those are the entry doors. You have people operating hotlines that can be operated by the state or by organizations. That's another entry door. You don't walk yourself into a shelter. You need an entry door. So everyone in an entry door needs to be trained. You cannot enforce best practices if you are not trained. Training is constant. You need to train those people. You need to know that you are going to have a lot of turnover because that work is exhausting. So people leave. So you need to constantly train those people. The other correction that could be done immediately is waiting periods are critical, need to be reduced because each hour and each day is higher risk for a victim. So how do you reduce that? In my opinion, in Puerto Rico, uh, it requires more participation of municipalities and their resources. Waiting periods are a disaster. That's where victims retract. That's where victimizers get braver somehow. The combination of a victim, like when you retract, you do so because you feel you're on your own. Mm. So that has other consequences because when you go forward to seek help, you are using all the courage that you have at hand to show up. So if you reunite courage and show up and you are rescheduled, you are postponed, you are told that was not the first step you should have taken, then you retract. So you are weaker and the effect it has on victimizers is the opposite. So abusers get fueled by this. So waiting periods are critical. They should not be taken lightly. They have an effect and we've seen them in the past homicides. We've seen it was in waiting periods where, where women were assassinated. So it's not my opinion is what I'm trying to say. Why is this in focus in Puerto Rico and not New Jersey? Why is this in focus in Puerto Rico and not Florida? I think it's pretty unique what's happened in Puerto Rico in the past six years or so. So I would think that Puerto Rico could be used as a case study for other jurisdictions and countries because of the combination of factors that operated here. So you have in 2016, a fiscal oversight management board appointed by Obama to restructure the debt, who actually 
the real agenda is to force Puerto Ricans to pay the debt. And you have that set up and put in place, and a year after, you have two Category 5 hurricanes in a two-week period make landfall in this same place where poverty and austerity and uh, lack of services were already a reality a year before the hurricane. So you had a massive migration, a total collapse of system protections, of social protection systems in the island. A total collapse is not an exaggeration, like absolute collapse of hospitals, courtrooms, police stations, electrical grid, water supply, and communication grid. In 2018, in November, before the Harvard uh, study was published and before the chat was leaked, we had um, a demonstration asking for the governor to sign an emergency state due to gender-based violence because at the time we had already doubled gender-based violence killings from the previous year. So we knew this was going to happen because we have studied previous disasters in other jurisdictions, so we know that when protection systems collapse, violence rises. So all organizations were trying to prevent this, but we were on our own. There was not a single government effort to provide a coordinated response to victims. There were not even instructions for victims what to do, where to go, where protection orders were going to be automatically extended. Could you leave the country with your kids? There were no instructions for anyone. Hmm. I believe the numbers are 37 killings in 2017 and 64 in 2018. So this happens in November. Governor Ricky Rosario refuses to sign any declaration of emergency or to even acknowledge there was an emergency. And then, then comes the Harvard study, then comes uh, the leakage, and then come the ousting of the governor. So I think these are circumstances to observe. Right. So what we have right now, which is the declaration of emergency that was signed in January, took two years and three governors to be able to have someone to acknowledge that to a point that he would sign a set of instructions to all the cabinet with a timeline to do something about it. I'm not saying it's perfect or even that it, you know, solves anything immediately, but at least it, it does communicate a sense of urgency and priority. And I think that is important, not only to activism and to grow, you know, people's awareness about the problem, but it's crucial for survivors living in violent situations to know that they are a priority. If you are trying to solve anything, any problem that has some, you know, observable tendency that has been rising or growing, 
you really need to look for, you know, the previous five years and what is leading up to this rise. Because things are not happening in a void. They do have context. We don't need others to explain to us what's happened. We know what happened because we were here. <laughs> and so we have a right to our story. I think, you know, that would be also the most fundamental and basic right of survivors. You are entitled to your story. No one has to tell you what you went through. You survived it. <laughs> so, that, you know, that's a fight. Incredibly, you know, as it might sound, that's a fight that we're willing to give to survivors in Puerto Rico. It also explains to me why every time I read an article about this, six years is used as the period of time in which we are measuring femicides and such. Yes. Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentigua Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Sarah McClure and Paulina Velasco are our senior producers. Our lead producer is Cedric Wilson. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer. Stephen Colon mixed this episode. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor and at OpsLead. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram. Tweet us at Latina to Latina. Remember to subscribe and follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, Amazon Music, wherever you're listening. Remember, every time you share the podcast or leave a review, you are helping us grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.